Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. I'm Janine Dunn. And I'm Julie Cook. Uh, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Hey, thanks for joining us. Um, this is going to be a really awesome episode because we have uh, a really terrific guest named Penn Pritchard. And uh, Penn is the uh, coordinator of diversity, equity, and inclusion at AIM Academy, where I work. Uh, we It's located in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, a sunny city just outside of Philadelphia. Um, Penn, before I do the rest of your introduction, how are you doing uh, this fine evening? Uh, I'm I'm great. It's been you know a long day, but I'm I'm really excited about this. It's been, it's been awesome to meet people, and I can't wait to have the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And listeners, as you're uh, kind of chiming in, we're gonna talk about uh, Penn's perspective as um, a person working in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they see education as ripe for opportunity for change and in what ways they would love to see education move in the right direction for, you know, students, for teachers, what have you. And so I'm sure you're in for a really um, terrific treat. I know I love talking with Penn every time we have a conversation. We were just saying before the recording started that it ends up being like an hour of just talking about all sorts of things that are pretty nourishing. So I'm hopeful that this will be a similar conversation. Now, Penn, I, I wrote this little bio for you, and um, I hope it captures some of the work that you've been doing. Um, we've known each other for a little while now, and this is what I've come to understand your work to be recently. And I know it's changed over, over time, but um, here it goes, and you can add on or subtract anything after I give you the short introduction. So. Penn Pritchard has been working in education for more than a decade, focused on centering traditionally minoritized voices in curricula, helping teachers build their capacity to make classrooms more equitable and inclusive, and constructing spaces that allow student voice to be heard and valued, among other things. In 2019, you know, a little accolade here, Penn was awarded the Carney Sando Advis Equity and Action Grant and was featured in a film wah, 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 by Andre Robert Lee, which is amazing. And I'm sure that was a, a treat. Um, did I capture that pretty well? Yeah, that was that was beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. So I'll have you help me the next time I need to provide a bio for something. I'll just use this. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> um, and Penn, we'll, we'll drop your personal website uh, in our show notes so people can access that um, and check out your work. And you even have a clip of the film. I don't know, is it the whole film that's up on your website or just a clip? Um, I'm not sure, but there's a, definitely a link to the full film if it's just the the teaser. And also I should mention, it's a, it's a short film. It's about half an hour long. So, you, you know, anybody can check it out. And it's not just my project. Um, it actually features all three of the inaugural grantees. Um, and some of the other projects are are really incredible. Um, so I would recommend checking it out just for that. And because Andre Robert Lee is just such an incredible filmmaker, he did um, an absolutely marvelous job with it. And it was wonderful to get to work with him. Cool, cool. Yeah, we will drop a link to Andre Robert Lee's film in the show notes as well, so people can check that out. Now, um, Penn, we met, this is, I was just trying to think about this today. We met over 10 years ago which is wow. crazy. Um, and you were at that time doing awesome work with little ones, elementary school kids at a program at AIM um, called the Interactive Humanities. And you were also doing work in arts classes at AIM. Um, and I always like to say that teachers in particular 
are people that sort of go through these, you know, uh, evolutions of, of their work and themselves in their work, because being a teacher is sort of just an ongoing process of, of reflection and growth um, as the teaching research changes, as we as human beings change, you know, and I can, I know I can pick out a few, what I call crucible moments or what, you know, authors have called crucible moments um, over the past 10 years that sort of have nudged me in a certain direction. And I would love to hear you kind of talk about what have been some of your um, moments over the last 10 years that have kind of pushed or nudged you in, in specific ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought this was such a such a cool question as someone who's just really interested in, in transformation and evolution. And um, I completely agree with you. I think that all the things that you're saying about teachers um, is really true because I think at our at our core, most teachers are our learners. <laughs> um, I know that I sort of got into teaching um, because I wanted to be in school all the time and most of us are not independently wealthy. Um, so, you know, being in school and being a teacher is, is kind of my way to keep learning. So I, I hope that that never stops. Um, you know, and I think this is a, I was, it's an interesting question, you know, talking about like, like change agent and, and changing so much like over the years. And I was just kind of reflecting on how that that's obviously very true in a lot of ways. And, and in some ways, like not really. So there's a lot of what I'm doing now that I can really trace back and I can see, um, the kernels of that, even in just like my my very earliest beginnings as an educator. Uh, so I, I didn't study education in, in undergrad. I actually was a um, I was a fine arts major. I studied uh, studio arts, art history, and gender studies, um, and really just focused on kind of my own voice and my own work. Uh, and then when I went to grad school, um, which is what brought me back to Philly, I went to the University of the Arts. Um, even at that time. Uh, I, I was already really trying to kind of integrate the things that I had learned previously with this educator identity. So sort of because of my um, my academic background, I was already kind of coming with this like like queer identity, with this feminist identity. Um, and really from the earliest time of thinking of myself as a teacher, I was already thinking about how to integrate those things um, with being an educator. So um I just thought that was kind of like interesting to think about like what's new and what's changed and what really has just been um, this like Pokemon-esque evolution of this like <laughs> little, little like, like novice teacher that I've been and then just like slowly kind of getting more more powers as, as I have moved on. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I think about really my my career and thinking about the these like crucible moments, these like inflection points where something shifts, um, there's, there's, there's two that came to mind. Um, and the first one was probably five years into being at AIM, like somewhere around there, maybe four or five years. Um, you know, as I said, this, this work, as far as like situating, um, social justice kind of at the, the core of my teaching praxis was something that I was always doing, like in my own classroom space. Um, and I didn't have a lot of community around that. I was used to being pretty solitary. And I remember that um, there was a professional development that I found out about through, um, I think I was probably in a meeting with you. I think we were probably doing like a leadership for the future cohort at the time. And, um, and someone mentioned that they had been tapped to go to a professional development on um, like gender and sexuality diversity. And my, like immediately, like I, I felt really, like like hurt kind of like wounded almost um that I was like 
oh, like, like, why wasn't I like chosen to do that? Or why wasn't I asked to do that? You know? And what I sort of realized was that even though these things about myself and my teaching practice, like felt so important and so integral to me, um, I, I wasn't really connecting with other people around it. So around, so, you know, knowing for myself that obviously like, like gender and sexuality are really, really core sites of identity for me. Um, and I thought that I was, you know, quote unquote, like out about those things, but that kind of that, um, that experience like made me really realize that I was like, oh, I maybe haven't actually been as vocal about this as I thought. Um, and that was a moment where I, I had some really, um, really great conversations with, with folks who were in leadership and kind of just really starting to talk about what were my professional growth goals and ideas and like, what did I want to work towards? Um, and that's really when I started to solidify this idea of like, where do I want to move towards? And then getting a lot more strategic about, um, you know, kind of vetting opportunities in terms of whether they moved me closer to those goals or whether they kept me where I was at or sort of moved me further away from them um, and became like a little bit of this, this like compass to follow. So I think that that moment stands out as being really important um, of that time when I was just like, oh, I, I really need to connect with other people who are passionate about about this kind of education in order to just, just level up myself, you know, and to really, and to, and to grow through that teaching community. Um, so that stands out. And then um, I think the last one that I can also speak to when I think of another really transformational moment is, is one that I think that a lot of us probably share, um, which was around the, the 2016 election. Um, you know, and I think before then, I I was always very, um, you know, pretty pretty radical in the sense of, you know, really like a, like addressing the the roots of inequity, right, in my own classroom. But I definitely felt, um, you know, like there was sort of a time and place for that, and that I kind of had to keep it under wraps. Like you know, a lot of the stuff that we hear about, like you don't want to upset parents, you don't want to step too much out of line, you know, and. I think that that what happened in 2016 was a really big wake up call for me as it was for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, really, I think what changed in me at that moment was just recognizing kind of where, where silence and complicity had gotten us. Um, and it wasn't somewhere that I wanted to be, and it wasn't something that I wanted to participate in. Um, and I think that this is really when I, felt emboldened around really claiming like education as my primary site of activism um, and and just deciding and making this commitment both to myself but also to my students and my community um, that I wasn't going to shy away uh, from having hard conversations um, and that I wasn't going to shy away from you know calling out and calling in when necessary uh, and I, and I, I still think about that. So that's still something that I really push myself to do. And I think that that was incredibly transformative, um, moment in, in my evolution as, as an educator. I'm just gonna, we're, we're just gonna stop recording right now. That's the end of the podcast because the like mic drop, you know, I don't know what to say. Also, I'm just like, also, I'm just like uh, taking like voracious notes because I think that like, and Julian, Matt and Janine can probably agree with me, you know, as we end our, our cycle in this doctoral program in the next few months here, um, you know, I think all three of us, all four of us, sorry, have been really, 
saying, what are we, what are we doing? Like what's happening next? You know, like where, mm. where are we moving mm. toward? And I, I love yeah. this, uh, the image that you just painted for listeners out there, right? Like you're, you're not running away from things. You're not just sort of like, uh, I guess just being right in this moment right now and sort of just reacting to what's in front of you, but you're saying, okay, pause for a minute. Like what's, what's happening in the future that I, where do I see myself in the future? You know, what does that look like? And then how, how can I really, as you said, level up to get to that point. And um, that's such just a, 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 such like less frantic way about existing and, uh, <laughs> and which I feel like. So... There's still a lot of frantic existence. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, um, I don't know, co-host. Do you want to ask anything about that or like comment on that at all? My only comment is that well, I hundred percent agree with what everything you just said there, Mike. And what's funny, tomorrow I'm actually going to lead a professional development session that is on that exact topic of uh, thinking about, you know, I guess uh, moving forward, and that if we don't really take the time to reflect on, you know, where we've been, how do you make progress, you know, or how do you grow? Um, so I love, I love everything that you just said there. Well, Penn, I just added a sticky note to my desk here. Does this get me closer to my goals? <laughs> if not, <laughs> I need to leave it because that's where, you know, saying yeah, yes to everything. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Another thing that I can like kind of offer that's been really helpful for me too is giving myself the permission that just because I can do something um, and even just, and even if I, I would be the best person to do something, it doesn't mean that I have to. Yeah. 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 Yes. Mm. What you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> yeah. Pod, podcast yeah. head nodding, happening all across the board here. <laughs> um, well, awesome, Penn. I really like appreciate your reflections on that first question. And, you know, I'm just going to roll right into my next question. And and this is again about change, um, and and maybe actually, it's it's funny that you you answered the first question the way that you did because I think it also speaks to sort of the second question, right? Which is, um, you know, when I you you right now uh, use the pronouns they them and theirs, but when we first met, that wasn't um, that wasn't the case, and so that's been that's been. Um, something that I feel like you've sort of gone through with in this school community that we exist in. Right. And, um, and I, and I want you to kind of reflect on that, but I also want you to, to know that I like have this very specific memory of the day that you told me that you're going to start using they, them, theirs. And I just wanted to tell you live on this podcast, actually, well, live on this recording, that I, I really felt so honored to have earned your trust to count, to count me as an ally in your journey and felt really heartened on that day. Um, and I remember that moment like very specifically. And so I really wanted to say thank you for entrusting me with that. And I would love for you to kind of talk about how you how you went through this process of um, changing your pronouns within our school community specifically and what that was like for you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, first of all, I would, I think it's really like awesome that you remember that. Um, and 
you know, I, and, and thank you. I mean, I would just like return that. I mean, thank you for, for deserving the trust, right? Like, thank you for showing <laughs> that you were going to show up in that allyship um, because, you know, we wouldn't have had that conversation if I didn't feel certain that that was the case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like I've, I've come out as so many different things over the years and, and, you know, I don't expect that that will, will end. Like, I think this is a lifelong process. It's one of the things that I, I love the most and that I really cherish about a lot of my identities is, um, you know, the, the fluidity that's inherent in them, um, especially just the way that, that my queerness has evolved, like over my life. Um, and it's a really exciting thing, you know, for me that I know that that's not static and I know that it's going to keep um, continuing to change and I'm going to get to like meet new parts of myself and become different people. Um, I think the thing that's been really consistent throughout all of that process is like, um, you know, when I explain different, uh, you know, like, like coming out or things like related to transition, it's always like been like, it's okay until it's not. Um, so, you know, obvious, well, maybe not obviously, I guess I should probably not obvious. Um, you know, this was definitely something, um, as far as, as coming into, um, you know, really, really understanding and embracing and especially talking about, um, my queerness, my, my transness, my non-binary-ness, um, that went through a lot of stages, right? So like there was a lot of, of, of growth and things that were happening before I ever debuted that on like the work stage, right? Um, so, so I think in some ways, like, you know, I, I had already built up some of that resilience by, you know, testing those things out really like within queer community first. Um, so I wanna give credit to just my, you know, my, my queer family for giving me the, um, you know, just the, the strength and support to to be able to to gain language for things that I didn't have before. Uh, as far as coming out and like having and navigating that within a school community, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, it's it's been really challenging. I, I understand why some people want to just like have a total new start and just show up somewhere and just be like, this is my name, these are my pronouns, like this is my deal. Um, I'm a drastically different person in many ways than I was 12 years ago, right? Um, so I think that the, you know, so, okay, so I'm, so I'm thinking in terms of like, like strategy, because I'm big, I'm big on, I'm on strategic planning with, with everything, including like my own coming out, um, you know, and I got really great advice from, from a lot of friends and, um, you know, and especially my, my partner who is also um, trans and non-binary and um, had, had transitioned kind of longer ago than, than I did. And they talked to me a lot about the importance of like building a team of allies and accomplices um, and really scaffolding uh, that, that process of, of transition and coming out. So in other words, like I knew when this was like, you know, just this like really like precious little vulnerable thing that I, you know, was, was just starting to, to really be able to share widely. Um, I, I did not have the resilience to be able to uh, share that with people who weren't going to respond with affirmation and validation and positivity. So I was really strategic about the first few conversations that I had around that side of identity, like choosing people that I really knew with like 95% certainty were going to be able to show up for that conversation, um, including you, Mike. Uh, and, you know, that had kind of this, this twofold benefit of 
you know, obviously having, having a team of allies and accomplices in my community and like in my workplace that I could talk to, that I could tag in when things happened. Um, but it also was a way for me to just build up my own confidence in having those conversations and doing this kind of disclosure um, so that I could then, you know, do it in situations where I didn't know that it would be um, super supportive or like go over really well or have folks that would understand. Uh, so that was something that I'm I'm really glad that I approached it um, kind of methodically like that. The other thing is that, you know, and again, this is another thing that, that my partner Jules like shared with me is that that has absolutely borne out and been very, very true, um, is that there are people who you have really high expectations and hopes for um, who will let you down. Um, and that has unfortunately been been true in my experience. But the flip side of that is there are also always going to be people um, who you really didn't expect a whole lot from who just really show up. Um, and then and in that sense, it's really been this, this really beautiful gift um, to find out like who my people are, like who are really, really my people, you know? Um, and I don't have to question that because I I have these like really actual meaningful um, deep, vulnerable connections and conversations with folks. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat it either. It's been, you know, a few years now since I've, I've transitioned to using like the name and the pronouns that I do now. Um, and, and I, I, I still get misgendered every day. Like it's, that still happens. Um, so it's, it's hard. Like it's really hard to be, I think in any community. Um, but yeah, I think especially being someone who is like a DEI practitioner, especially, it's like a lot of times my job um, to help others when they are dealing with like microaggressions and things like that. Um, and, you know, it can be kind of hard and lonely when like I'm the one on the receiving end of that, because who do I go to? You know, like I'm the person that, that people go to. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a process and it is, it's still ongoing. I think that's one of the things that maybe people outside of um, like the LGBTQ community don't really understand or, or know is there's this idea that there's like, you come out and it's like this one event that like your whole life changes. And that's it, just not true. I mean, I, I come out every day in different ways. Like I am constantly coming out as different things to different people in different settings. Um, it's not a, it's not a one and done. Um, and sometimes it's a really like wonderful, validating, affirming thing. And sometimes it really sucks. Um, and both of those things are true <laughs> and they probably always will be. No, I was just, I'm just, I was just really wondering, you know, with working with students, how, how you shared that with them or if you shared it with them and uh, did, were they curious? Did they have questions? Uh, like how, how did that, how did, I'm just, I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I honestly can't quite remember. Like, I think I think at first, like, I would kind of talk with students, like, when it would come up, I would maybe mention things like, um, you know, I'd just be like, yeah, and I'd, I'm like, not a boy or a girl or whatever, and just kind of like, slip these things in. I think that's, that's generally like the way that I approach these conversations. I don't do a whole lot of like, very special episode, like we have to sit down and have a talk. Um, you know, it's, it's just part of, it's part of my life and it's part of my identity. So like I mention it when it's, when it's relevant. Um, but I think when I, I, I think like what you're asking is really when I wanted to make this, um, this, this total shift to using different language about myself in school. Um, I definitely did. I think the way that that worked was I kind of did it with, with colleagues and staff at like the end of one school year. 
Um, and, you know, had had help from my kind of ally team, like around that. And then the, the following year was when I sort of debuted this with students. Um, and I, I, I think I really just addressed it in doing introductions, which I would do anyway, because when I'm meeting with students um, and getting to know them, I'm always asking them questions about like, okay, like, you know, what's your, what's your name? Like, do you use a nickname? Like, what do you want to be called in this space? What feels good to you? Um, and I, I had already sort of an included pronouns in that conversation. So that was just like a kind of nice natural um, access point where I was already asking like students to have that conversation with me. So it was just sort of part of my modeling um, that I, I put it out there and I, I have my, you know, my very quick like elevator speech about like, you know, using they, them pronouns and how to do it and how to practice and like, what is a pronoun and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm sure that, you know, I, I just kind of do that with students as well. Um, and it's, it's hit or miss, you know, it's students are, students are people, they're the same. So I would have, um, you know, I, I can think off the top of my head and, and just with rather other people too, like, you know, who your allies are. I could tell you, um, two or three students who like got it and, and made an effort to get it right. And also like tried to help hold their fellow students accountable. Um, and I always really, really express my appreciation to them for that. Um, and some, you know, I mean, still, still to this day, it's like, it's like some students get it right and, and some don't, some don't, and I still correct them, you know, the way that I would anyone, but I'm very, I'm just very straightforward. I'm just kind of, it's, it's part of my introduction at this point, you know, it's just like, this is my name. This is the language that I use. Um, you know, who are you? What, what, what's your name? What are your pronouns? And just kind of norm it. I'm sure you're a, a great resource to, to your students. Um, and there's probably some who maybe even seek, seek you out, or maybe you're going through something similar that they can can relate to. Yeah, I also, um, I am the kind of like faculty advisor for our school's um, Gender and Sexuality Alliance. And that's been, that's been really, really awesome to get to connect with, um, with younger folks and kind of try to provide some in-school resources that like I certainly did not have access to. <laughs> yeah, I would just add that your work has been pretty ex expansive in creating alliances and these, you know, sort of um, and, you know, at, at first we were calling them affinity groups and we may still, some of them may still have those, those names, mm -hmm. but, um, they've all sort of like morphed into mm -hmm. sorts of different things. And I think that's been really invaluable for so many students in so many ways. And also just mm -hmm. for, for faculty as well, just people connecting to people on, you know, a real like mm -hmm. human to human kind of basis and understanding where, where each other are coming mm -hmm. from. Um, but before I, before I get too far, I want to just go back to something, you know, you talked about earlier and that is, um, and that is like, your sort of like, uh, you centering social justice in your work as an educator. And I, and I, um, in preparing for this conversation, I actually like steal this quote from you all the time that <laughs> the uh, you talk about education and teaching as your social justice activity. And again, I, I don't know, this is like, I don't know how my brain works or whatever, but I have these specific moments in my life that I can recall very vividly. And that was another one of them when it comes to our relationship where um where I can I can remember the time that you mentioned that, and I was like, oh yeah, that rings so true for me. Um, and it, I think that rings true probably for a lot of educators. Um, but I also know that there are a sizable number of educators out there who who see it as being important that they sort of remain as apolitical as possible 
in their in their work in the classroom and with students and with families. And I'm just curious, you know, how you kind of balance those two things, maybe like your work centering social justice and then also kind of responding to others that are out there that are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like that's the opposite of my work as I see it as a, as a teacher. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's so baked into just everything about me as an educator. I, I think really a probably, probably a lot of it has to do with like what brings you to teaching. Right. So like I, came to teaching from a place of social justice. Like that was like my impetus to teach um, was my just really fervent belief in the transformative power of education um, for social justice. Like I really see that being like a primary function of education when it's being done well. Um, so it never would have occurred to me to be any different kind of teacher because for me that it's just so intricately um, entwined with, with what education is. Um, because if we're not educating to make the world better, like what, what, like what else would we be doing? You know, like, um, that it's a very human thing to try to have progress. So it's, it's always kind of confusing to me. Like, it's very hard for me to understand, um, folks who approach teaching with, with kind of wanting to preserve the status quo. Um, just because that that seems like this very strange thing for humans to do. Like, it's not really a very human thing to not be innovating. Um, so, so I mean, yeah, so, so I guess that, that's one thing is just, just to say, like, I really, I see those things as, um, like, like, social justice is what came first, right? Like, it wasn't like I was an educator and then I found out about social justice and was like, ooh, how can I apply this to my teaching practice? So I think that does give me a little bit of, um, of an interesting lens just because of where I was already coming from, kind of, um, with my, my academic background. Um, so in think in thinking about this, I, you know, can, can just kind of explain a little bit of background stuff that I think will provide some context. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. My, so there's my like educational philosophy. <laughs> I often use this quote, and I'm sure Mike, you've heard me say this before. Um, this is, it's a quote from Honey Lee Cottrell, who's actually, um, a really rad, like lesbian photographer that shot for like on our backs in the nineties and stuff. And, she was talking about photography, um, and but but for me, I'm I'm talking about education. And she had this like really amazing quote that just like oh, like, punched me in the gut the first time I heard it. Um, that, that she says most of my work is a point for point retaliation for damages done to me. Um, I'm snapping over here. Snap, 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 snap. <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of what teaching is for me. Um, so I, I grew up, I, I call myself like a, you know, somewhat jokingly, but not really as like a, a survivor of Catholic school. Um, so I grew up in the independent school world, but I attended Catholic school for, for 13 years. And there was a lot about that experience that was really, really wonderful. Um, there's a lot about my educational experience that I am so grateful for. I had some really wonderful teachers. I had incredible opportunities um, and, and just a ton of, of educational privilege. Um, and at the same time, it was, it was traumatic, you know, like it was, it was very difficult in ways that I'm still unpacking, um, to grow up within a cultural context that, you know, purposely and, and pretty systematically denied me, uh, knowledge and language to understand myself and my own experience. Um, 
I often, well, I try not to do it often. I sometimes think about like what, how my life might have been different um, if I had had like one adult in my life who had access to the kind of, of work that I do or the kind of knowledge that I try to share with teachers. Um, and I don't think about it too much because like it, it makes me pretty sad, <laughs> you know, honestly, because there just, there wasn't any of that. So um, that's really at the core of a lot of my, I love a lot of my teaching of just like, how can we um, disrupt systems and histories of, of trauma and harm that have just so often been part and parcel of the way that we approach education in this country. Um, so that's, that's kind of a little bit of my, my own background that I think kind of helps maybe explain a little bit of my orientation to learning. Um, also just, just my background as far as, um, you know, really what I consider sort of my area of expertise. Like if I have one, I'm very jack of all trades. Um, but you know, my, my, my work is really rooted in, um, in intersectional feminist analysis and like that particular framework. Um, so for folks who are, just in case there's, there's people who are not familiar, um, intersectionality is an idea that um, specifically comes from um, black feminism um, and the really amazing um, black scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term um, in the 1980s to specifically describe the intersection um, of identity that black women occupied um, in terms of, you know, in, in, in black um, civil rights movement, there was kind of this, um, th this push to kind of leave like their, their womanhood at the door and focus like really just on that one side of identity. And then within feminist movement, it was like, well, you know, we're, we're here to talk about women's issues. So you need to leave your blackness at the door. And it's like, well, you don't get to decide um, which one of those things you're going to be at any moment. You, you, you are both and all at the same time, always. Um, so that's really, so that's where that idea comes from. I think it's really, really important to, um, to acknowledge the, the roots of that idea. That said, it's, it's been since expanded to, um, because it's a really useful, it's a really useful and beautiful way of thinking about identity. Um, so that's where, where all of my, my, my thought and analysis is really rooted in intersectional, intersectional feminism. And, um, you know, to get to your question about is can teaching be apolitical? Um, I rooted in that framework. I, I do not think so. Um, you know, I I do believe it's it's you know it's a buzz. It's a it's catchphrase for a reason. You know, the personal is political. Um, when what you know what are we talking about when we talk about politics? Like politics is really just um, you know this the study of how power is distributed and wielded, right? Um, so if if that's how we understand politics, then like you know, to be apolitical, I can only understand that to mean, you know, a style of teaching that maintains or upholds whatever the existing systems are, because all of those systems are political, right? Like they have really meaningful um, impact on people's actual lived experiences. Uh, so based on where kind of I'm coming from, I, I do believe that all teaching is a political act um, in that it can either uphold or disrupt um, the way that the power is held and and wielded um, a lot of times I you know power that's really rooted in identity um, I'm, I'm just curious as you're talking yeah. do you think there's a chance that teaching can become sort of too political um, and then my and then I'm sort of wondering how do you navigate that as, as the person in power, right, with, within a classroom, not forcing an agenda, but still 
interacting with like important issues and talking about stuff and not silencing things and, and bringing stuff to the table, but navigating it in a way where, you know, people feel free and, and comfortable to, to think how, how they feel that direction. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Let me, let me just like think for a second on that. How do I, I have some thoughts about that. If you, if you would like pen. Yeah, 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 go for it. I would love to hear your thoughts. I have like kind of some ideas swirling around, but I want to like let them crystallize a little bit. Sure. Yeah, Matt. I, I mean, I think that um, part of what you're asking might be a little bit about like uh, how do you, how do you like navigate this, this idea that, or maybe the idea that uh, teachers could act as like indoctrinators to young people. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like uh, telling young people what to think, mm -hmm. telling young people that, yeah. you know, there is like only one sort of way of viewing something. Right. And I think that uh, if you're, if you're a savvy educator and you've done the reflection and you've thought about what it means to be engaged in this like political activity, you're not approaching the situation with the idea that you're going to convince young people, you know, to, to absolutely think in one way or the other, you know, you're, te you're teaching maybe from a, uh, like a bedrock of like respect for other human beings, which is like sort of the founding of education, right? <laughs> like, uh, you're teaching from the, the idea that like people should be learning to think critically and like make up their mind about something and use information to, um, to their advantage and, uh, and learn, you know? And I think that's different than saying to someone, you must do this or you must think this way, which I think is, is where, this whole idea of like education as a political activity kind of like rubs people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, Penn, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, Mike, I, critical thinking was kind of the first thing that came to, to my mind um, because I don't know, this might be, this might be naive of me, but like, I, I, you know, I, I do believe that people fundamentally for the most part, um, you know, want to do well, um, <laughs> I hope. And I think that a lot of inequity comes from lack of access to information. Um, so what I really want to do is to, to first of all, provide the information that's often hidden. So, you know, as a teacher, uh, especially like, like history, I've taught history for a really long time. Um, there's a lot of like really weird stuff that happens around teaching history that um, I I don't, I don't know, like, I'm having a hard time, like, putting words to it, but um, I, there's, there's things that are just facts, and facts are not controversial, like, they shouldn't be, right? <laughs> um, so, I just tell people the truth, like, that's kind of the thing, and that's, and that's a pact that I have with my students, it's a pact that I have with my own children, um, that, like, I won't ever lie to them. Um, I will give an answer to the best of my ability that is developmentally appropriate, um, and that will be meaningful them and meeting them where they are. But I don't participate in um, sharing kind of like false or simplified narratives that people will then have to unlearn when they're older. Um, and that and that's and that's for a reason. I mean, that's based in neuroscience. Like humans are really good at learning things. Humans really are terrible at unlearning things. Um, so I would rather just do it accurately and do it right and be honest the first time. <laughs> um, 
you know, I also, I, I'm thinking about the way that I kind of try to structure a lot of activities is, is leading students through questioning and allowing them to, um, allowing them, but also trusting them to arrive at their own conclusions. So one example that can, that comes to mind, um, I mentioned that I taught, I taught the Italian Renaissance for like many, many years. And really the thing that was most interesting to me about teaching the Renaissance was the way that we still see so many mirrors and so many echoes of that particular time period in our modern culture. Um, and it was this really cool way to get to talk about like contemporary politics without having to talk about politics, contemporary politics at all. Um, so I'm thinking about things like how I approach teaching like the fall of Rome, for instance. Um, if I do my job teaching all of the contributing factors that go into teaching the fall, that go into teaching like the fall of Rome, um, you know, when students then either in my class or elsewhere um, kind of learn about the United States in, in, in this moment of late capitalism where we are, um, they'll see that there's a lot of overlap there that like, oh, this is very reminiscent of something that we've seen before in history. Um, you know, and, and that's, I think that that's, that's a reasonable conclusion to come to. Um, and I don't need to, I don't need to spell that out, right? Like if I can hold the space and if I can structure my teaching and structure the learning activities in such a way um, that, that students can go through that questioning process and come to those ideas and those conclusions on their own, it's going to be a lot more meaningful for them. And they're going to have better comprehension and they're going to have better recall than if I just told them that anyway. Um, so I'm not really interested in like telling people what to think. Um, I want to give them the ability to, to to kind of know how to think. I want to teach people how to question dominant narratives. I want to teach students like how to do um, a close read of something. Like how do we unpack and look for uh, like like hidden meaning in in all of these histories and these kind of surface level things. Um, so I, I do I do see that as being politically meaningful, but I don't see it as as teaching us a particular political agenda. Um, you know, and then there are some things that just because of my, my own values and ethics, you know, I, I don't believe that um, that, that human rights are, are political. I know that some people would disagree with that, um, but that's that I feel I feel very firm in being able to kind of stand in my integrity um, where with saying that there are some things that are that are not up for debate. Um, we don't debate uh, the inherent worth of, of human beings. Um, in my classroom. That's just not something that I'm, I'm willing to participate in. Um, and I think that that is, um, you know, a boundary that I'm fine drawing for students because it's one that I would like to see them draw in their own lives. Tough to argue with that <laughs> like, from my perspective, right? <laughs> I hope that that, does that kind of answer, answer your question, Matt? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I'm sure it's a really powerful experience, um, you know, for the students to, to have this rich discussion. And as you were, were sort of talking, I was envisioning, you know, a lot of bantering back and forth, a lot of expression, a lot of, um, mm -hmm. you know, filtering out ideas. And, and another thing that I was also sort of picturing was you spending a lot of time uh, orchestrating these questions and, and getting it together. And, and I guess I just, my follow-up would be, how do you go about doing that? Um, structuring an effective, discussion uh, rather than just, all right, we're going to talk about this. What do you think? <laughs> it's like crickets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never, okay, ask, how do you, never ask students how what do they you do think. That? That's like one of the, 
that's one of the biggest things I would say. Um, you know, because everybody everybody has an opinion. I don't really uh, always care what they think. I want to, you know, I want to know what they what they've heard. What have you encountered? What do you know? How do you know it? Where did that come from? You know, where you know, let's 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 dig deep. Like, where are these ideas coming from? Where do they originate? Um, so yeah, so I, I'm never just kind of like, here's a controversial topic. Like, let's have a debate. You know, I'm, I, 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 I mean, first of all, it's not. I mean, it's just not really good praxis to to do that. Um, it's mm-hmm. not gonna, it's not gonna address like my learning goals for my students, right? Like, what's the point of that? Um, I, it's it's kind of a complicated question because I, I'm I'm not being cagey. It's like it's literally that's like most of what my job is is kind of like my work with teachers is helping them to develop. Um, that ability to, to create and to maintain these kinds of learning spaces. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't want to minimize that and say like, well, it's just as easy as just do like this thing. But um, I think some of the things, you know, that I can put out there when I think about um, sort of planning, planning like with a lens of equity and inclusiveness, um, just doing a lot of of critical thinking and questioning myself of like really getting clear with like, like, why am I doing this? Like, why are we learning this? Um, what are the things that it can be connected to? What do I hope that people um, will get from it? Thinking about who's in the room, you know, like, what are the funds of knowledge that I have there? Which identities are represented? Um, which ones aren't? What do we, you know, what do I need to be conscious of? Um, of really bringing to the space into the conversation because it might not be represented among those folks. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's really just part of the planning process, right? Like I want to kind of establish what are my goals? Like where, where do I want people to, to end up? And then kind of reverse engineer and just be like, what are some interesting and thoughtful and engaging activities and questions um, that will kind of lead us down this path, but still have a lot of room and a lot of space um, for, for personal choice and for fluidity and like all of those really, those things that like make teaching fun. Um, like I don't really like to do the same thing or this, like the same thing, like the same way more than once. Um, I like to have an idea of where I want to get and then like, you know, several paths that kind of could take us there. Uh, I'm also known for being a very easy teacher to get off track, um, you know, marks. Because like, honestly, some of the best things that have ever happened in my classes were things where like, I just followed where students were leading us. And a lot of times like students have way better ideas than I do, you know? So that's also part of it is just like having that trust in myself and also having the benefit of having an institution that trusts me enough um, that I can have that flexibility uh, to, you know, just kind of like go on this journey and to just like also mess it up sometimes. Like, I think that's another thing that more teachers need to be um, kind of more open to messing up. Uh, and I don't want to only put that on teachers. I want, um, I, I think schools and administrators need to trust teachers more. I come from a place of deep love and deep respect and reverence for teachers. Uh, and I think that a lot of times what they need is just sort of people to empower them and to get out of their way and like let them learn by doing the same way we want our students to. Yes. <laughs> now, now layered in <laughs> like the work that you're doing around social justice and equity and inclusion is also this fact that at AIM, you there's kids there who who learn differently, right? 
So how do you think working with this population has impacted your understanding of our education systems, as well as the importance of our work to actually rethink education in itself? Oh, gosh. I mean, being being a part of the in community, like, has just pushed me in ways that, like, I didn't even know that I, I would. I mean, I did not have a special education background. I have a, a master's in teaching visual arts, um, and I did, you know, I, I, I did inclusion and stuff like that in my in my graduate work, just like we all do. Um, but, yeah, I kind of just fell into being at AIM and then have just, because, like I said, like, I, I'm a learner, so I've, like, learned as I've I've gone along, and... Um, it's been really awesome to get to work at a place uh, that is really centered around creating a space that, um, you know, that doesn't just accommodate learning difference, um, but is structured around uh, that type of neurodivergence. And I, I think in terms of like, hmm, how has it impacted my my understanding of education? I, I like, I, I want to speak to this specifically as a DEI practitioner, um, because in the world of like diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the things that I that I've seen happening, and I, I don't place this because sort of on the on, on DEI practitioners, I I kind of think this is the wider like American cultural problem of uh, having difficulty kind of attuning attuning to like like nuance or um, holding like multiple truths if they're paradoxical. Um, but a lot of times, like the way that shows up is that I think that. Um, things get a little flattened. And I think that sometimes it can be like just just running from like one fire to the next of kind of like, who is who's most marginalized like this week, like who's been attacked like right now. And like, that's what DEI is all about, you know. Um, and there's a few things because they're they're really, you know, loom large in our cultural consciousness that I think that you know, we, we see a lot of focus on, on race, obviously, rightfully so, um, you know, and I think that education has, I don't want to say that they've done a great job with addressing gender, gender equity, but I think there's, it's been part of the conversation for longer, right? Like, it's a typical thing when you talk about um, equity and inclusion, there's like a few sites of difference that people um, kind of always, always gravitate towards. Uh, and as someone who, who again is like really roots my work in, in intersectional analysis, I think that's kind of missing the point. If we just do these like episode of like like monster of the week episode approach to DEI integration, um, and one of the things that I that I really consistently see missing in those conversations um, is is a really specific focus on um, on disability and about ableism. Uh, it is it is not something that I often see centered in conversations about um, equity and inclusion. And I think that's been an amazing gift that AIM has given me because, you know, ability and learning disability is the one unified site of, of experience. Like that is um, an access point that we all have, whether you're a student at the school who, you know, experiences that type of neurodivergence or whether we are a parent or a teacher or anybody, like that's something that is all part of our everyday experience. Um, we all have some kind of like lived experience around that particular site of identity. So um, I think that that's been really transformative in just opening my um, my eyes and expanding my knowledge about disability rights activism and what that particular um, kind of thread of, of civil rights has looked like um, and continues to look like. And in terms of rethinking education, <laughs> um, one of the shifts that I, 
I see happening some places and I want to see more and more is really recognizing, you know, huge, huge air quotes here, but like special education. Um, it's, it, it shouldn't be the afterthought. It shouldn't be like what comes after like regular education, because honestly, a lot of what's happening in special education, um, is it's incredibly exciting. It's really things that are, um, really aligned with like a lot of really cool, like new emergent data and evidence. And, um, you know, those are things that I think would benefit everyone. Um, you know, when we think about like what, what is special education? Like it's really, I, I would argue that, that I think that special education is fundamentally like culturally responsive in nature. Um, you know, in, in the sense that the foundation of, of special education is that it's, it's differentiated learning, right? And, you know, the students at AIM who all have some kind of um, a language-based learning disability, um, it's a necessity for them to learn in that way. But everything that we know about the human brain tells us that, like, all people can learn this way. And in fact, they probably should. Um, so I would love to see some of the kind of staples of quote unquote special education as far as differentiating for individuals, um, really being responsive to the people that are in front of you, um, treating people as, as, as unique folks with their own intersection of identities and interests and strengths and uh, you know areas of need and all of these things. Um, why should that be the purview of, of a special education? Like that, that's, should be the baseline of what everyone's getting. You uh, you commented on the you commented on your DEI work, and it seems like much of that work is centered on relationships and the importance of building um, connections. And and as we have all experienced uh, over the past year and change now, um, you know, it's been a challenge uh, for sure. You know, we're zooming, we're on uh, you know audio chats, we're stuck behind the computer screens. Um, how would you say that this pandemic has impacted your work in constructing inclusive spaces for stu students and teachers? Oh, I just want to do like, I just want to like all just kind of take a deep breath. Um, Cause we're all, we're all teachers, man. Like this has been, this has been hard. This is not normal. Um, so I just want to offer kind of some words of affirmation to teachers. Um you know, we're, we are all doing, doing our very best. And I just have been so, I've just, I've just been so impressed and just so amazed at watching my colleagues and other people in, in our field, just like being like, I, I don't know, it feels kind of cliche to say, let's say like superheroes at this point, but like, I no no one, teachers, no one is giving you enough credit. And I just want to say to the teachers on this call and any that are listening that like, I see you and I appreciate everything that we're doing um, right now. And this is really hard and it's not our imagination that it's hard. It really is challenging. <laughs> um, and that's real. And, and it's not going to be seamless and it's not like it's going to be like it was before. Um, and that's okay. I think it's really good in some ways, honestly. <laughs> um, but I guess to get specific about this question of like, how has my work um, around equity and inclusivity been specifically impacted by, uh, by the, by the pandemic and having to, you know, do virtual and hybrid learning and all of those things. Um, there's definitely been ways that it's been uniquely challenging. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, like you said, I mean, it's, it's work that is, 
fundamentally rooted in relationships and communication. And in these kinds of, of formats, even being on, on Zoom, like it's been a really wonderful tool in a lot of ways, um, but it's hard. Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really um, uh, approximate like our actual patterns of communication. So I think that it does really, I think it does limit um, folks' ability to engage in uh, like, like compassion and empathy and like those like kind of emotional things that just, they just work better when we're in space with one another. Um, and then just like the, the communication disruptions, right? Like it's a lot harder to have collaborative overlap. Like we're even seeing that in this conversation um, that it's just a little more stilted. It's less natural than when we're in space together. Um, so that's been really challenging. That's been, you know, there's, there's just been some things that we normally would do that we just haven't been able to, and that just needs to be okay. Um, one specific thing that I've definitely seen a lot, well, I don't want to say a lot, but like numerous times this year, um, is that I've, I've seen several situations where there's like an issue that happens, um, related to some, some kind of like, like bias or discrimination or something like where, you know, there, it's like an ouch moment, right. That's like rooted in identity, um, that I think those things have escalated more quickly than I think that they would um, in like an in-person setting. So I'm specifically thinking like one instance where I was working with um, with a colleague about something that happened in their class like that morning and the student was at home, right? So like parent overheard this whole interaction and was understandably upset about it as anyone would be if they overheard like, you know, something challenging happening to their, their child. Um, but this parent also saw that child like at the height of their emotionality about this, right? Because they're right in the next room. So there was this need for this like immediate response. It was, it, it just escalated very quickly. Had that happened in a classroom setting, um, you know, I, I don't think that would have happened. Like I know that teacher, they would have taken the student out into the hall probably and had like, you know, a three to five minute conversation. And that kind of would have been the end of it. And likely that student probably would have forgotten it by the time they went home and mom probably never would have heard that story. Um, so things like that, I think that there is just um, kind of like the feeling of being under a microscope a little bit. Uh, and I think that there is an immediacy um, that's happening in these virtual spaces that um, is not always allowing for kind of the time and the cooling off and like the breathing and the unpacking and the processing uh, that helps people navigate these things with kind of, um, with grace and loving kindness. Um, so those things have been, have been, have been hard and have been a challenge. Um, I also want to make sure that, that, you know, we acknowledge here is one of the really wonderful things from a DEI lens about this, this pandemic is the way that it has really expanded the way that we're thinking about accessibility. There are a lot of things that we are doing right now, um, that is especially when it comes to, you know, being able to join things remotely, um, being able to have closed captioning, being able to have, um, you know, like, like, like hearing aids and things like that. There are accommodations and adjustments that we've been making um, that, that disabled people have been asking for, for literal decades and have been told that it's impossible. Like, no, you can't work from home. Like it's not possible, you know? And now we're seeing because there is more of a demand for those um, accessibility measures from people who don't normally need them. All of a sudden, oh wow, like we can actually do these things. It turns out. Um, so that's one thing that I, I hope that we take away from this. That I really hope that we recognize that a lot of the accessibility um, things that we've had to re-engineer and that we've had to troubleshoot this year. Uh, 
are, are really, really good, just best practices in inclusion, um, you know, both for folks with disability, but, you know, also things around like, like class and financial barriers. I've been able to attend um, some professional development things this year that my school wouldn't have been able to support me to attend. I wouldn't have been able to take time away from my family to attend. Um, you know, we were able to send a larger cohort to the People of Color Conference this year than we ever have and probably ever will, um, because some of those financial barriers were significantly um, you know, decreased because of being in this, in this pandemic, you know, and those are things that have been really positive. And I hope that people do not <laughs> let those things go when we finally move into, um, you know, not back to normal, but moving into whatever we decide our next normal should be. So Penn, along those lines, um, if you were to have a few suggestions for what's next, what do we want to hold on to? What do we want to rethink about, um, education, what's next, if you could think about some advice to give to schools as they're already trying to think about what next year is going to look like um, in these times. I know everybody's uh, on edge trying to figure it figure it all out. Uh, what would you say to them? Oh, I think I, I would say something different depending on when you catch me as probably as evident in this conversation. I am really fueled by these kinds of conversations. Um, so I'm really grateful to be able to, to kind of have this, this space and be able to share some of these thoughts. Um, so I think the things that I would come up with right now are, they feel pretty immediate and of the moment for me, but as I'm thinking about this question, um, one of the things that I, that I really would like to see schools meaningfully, I don't even know if it's so much a rethink, um, but just being very thoughtful about how we approach diversity, equity, and inclusion work um, just in general. Um, and, and specifically, I would really like us to be very mindful about really positioning intersectionality um, at the center of, of DEI work. Um, and one of the things that I'm specifically contending with right now and being in this role, and one of the things that's really, really hard and really, really lonely is that, um, you know, I, I'm limited by the identities that I hold. Um, I try very hard to hold space and to understand other experiences. Um, I do my very best to believe people um, and to and to affirm their truth when they share that with me. Um, but there are things that that I won't see. You know, I, I am limited by, um, you know, I'm I'm a white person in this world, and that drastically impacts, um, you know, my experiences, my perspectives, the way that I engage, and you know, and there's a lot of things about my, my identity that are really helpful sometimes in, in situations. And I also can't be everything to everyone. Um, no one can. So, you know, I think about a school where, you know, you might have someone that looks different from me. Like perhaps you would have like, uh, you know, like, like a cishet woman of color in this role. And that's amazing. That is so important. We need those role models, you know, female students of color, deserve and need to have someone who shares that identity that they can have just like that, that, that connection and not having to educate someone about your experience. Um, but I also think about, you know, the experience of like a, a, a like white trans student in that school and like, where do they go when they want to have that experience? Um, and I think that a lot of the pressure that gets put on DEI practitioners when there's one person in a school is that we are just like kind of asked to play so many different roles and be so many different things to so many people. 
And it's just not setting us up for success. Like we can't, we can't do that. No one, no one can. Like it's, you know, I, I think here about the, the, the great like Audre Lorde quote about like, there are no single issue struggles because we don't live single issue lives. Um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about equity means that everyone gets what they need um, to be happy, healthy, whole, to have opportunities for success. Um, and I, I don't think that this model that we have been developing over the last you know, decade or so where there's been this kind of emergent field of DEI practitioners being school-based, um, I, I don't think that this idea of having one person in this role in a school community is sustainable. I don't think it's kind, <laughs> honestly. Um, I, I would really like to see this have more of a team approach um, you know, where there was really a concerted effort to build a school-based team of folks um, with intersectionality in mind, like really trying to see like who is represented, who are we missing, where are the gaps, how do we fill them, um, you know, how are we creating a support team for the people doing this work because DEI work, it, it's, it's heart work, you know, not, not hard work, it is hard work, but it's heart work. Um, it, it, it just is. It just is. It, it's different. It's just different than, than teaching chemistry. Um, and that's not a dig towards chemistry teachers. I could not do it. All of my admiration. Um, but, you know, there, there just, there just is, there, there's a lot of emotionality. Like it's not work that you can't not take home with you. Um, there's a reason that in independent schools, DEI practitioners, um, you know, people in a director role, the, the average time that they last in those roles is about three years. Um, and that's not, that's not healthy for the community, right? Like we really want people who are going to be able to stay and those, and those folks aren't leaving because they're not qualified because they're not capable or because they're not incredible at what they do um, is because it's not a recipe for success. Like we're not, we're not creating an opportunity for everyone um, to get what they need. So that is one kind of radical rethink that I would really, really like to see schools doing is, is to stop trying to task one person um, with a job that that no one person, no matter how marginalized they are, could possibly do. Um, you know, that's I think that's one of the big things. And then the other one that comes to mind that I am really sitting with a lot right now is um, I, I I really want to look at this intersection of um, professionalism and politeness and white supremacy. Um, I think that there are so many uh, norms that we have in in society and culture, but especially in schools around professionalism um, that are just are just completely they're they're just norms of whiteness, you know. And and a lot of those a lot of the way that whiteness operates is to um, you know to cast anything that is a challenge to that to whiteness and to white supremacy in those systems. Um, you know, to cast anything that, that's a challenge to those things as being like taboo or impolite, you know, like you can't talk about, um, you can't talk about difference. You can't talk about religion. You can't talk about your salaries. Um, you know, like, why not? <laughs> why are those norms of professionalism? You know, because fundamentally they really only seem to, to serve and to kind of uphold and perpetuate, um, systems that are not working for everyone. Uh, so that's a really big thing that I, I think we need to very, very critically call out and, and actively work to dismantle. I don't think that it is serving us. Um, and I know for a fact that it is not serving um, marginalized students. And if we wanna really um, do more than just pay lip service uh, to, to their needs and their identities, I think we, we really, really need to get better about owning like what are um, the norms of white, cis, het, 
um, you know, Christian supremacy. Um, where do they show up in ourselves? Where do they show up in our institutions? Where do they show up in our communication? Um, and we need to be able to name those things. We just need to be able to call them out without, you know, everybody getting all up in their feelings about it. Like, I'm sorry, or they can have their feelings, but like feelings shouldn't shut down conversation. Um, we, we just need to get, we need to get comfortable with discomfort. Like we just do. I know that it's cliche, but, but that's just how it happens, you know? Um, I've been, I've been really, um, I've been really loving a lot of Adrian Marie Brown's writing a lot lately. I just finished reading, um, We Will Not Cancel Us, um, which I super highly recommend. I, I love it. It's a very, very short text. Um, but you know, one of the things that she is elucidating in there is this paradox of how can we live in a way that is aligned with like our, our goals and our ideals about liberation when we are within a system that is anything but, um, and that is a paradox. We should not be able to do those things at the same time. And yet we have to, <laughs> you know, so in as much as we can, like in these communities, in our schools, in our, um, you know, like, like critical friends groups or wherever we're creating these spaces where we are intentionally cultivating a space, like for this purpose of growth and learning, um, how much can we structure those spaces to be, examples of or exemplars for um the the kind of like liberatory future that we want to live our way into um and i think that that's that's how we do it and to you know to go back to that idea of like does this move us closer or does this keep us where we are or does it pull us further away from this and if we really vet the decisions that we're making and the actions that we're engaging in really with the the first question always being um is this emblematic of the liberatory future that we seek to create and if the answer is yes move towards that even if it's hard if the answer is no then why are we doing it why would we do something that is moving us further away from our goal of, of having everyone be able to show up in honesty in authenticity in wholeness and in humanity i i if that's our goal then then, then let's act like it, even if it's hard. Hard for me to disagree with anything you say, but especially like this last point, you know, if we're working together to create a more just and equitable society and education is our avenue for doing that work, then like, let's do it. You know, like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it. I, it's, it's hard for me to say no to that. Hey everyone, it's Mike. Thank you so much for checking out this conversation with Penn Pritchard, our 31st episode of Rethinking EDU. So crazy that we've made it this far. We're really trying to build something great with Rethinking EDU, and we would love your support. So if you can head on over to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash rethinkingedu. We've set up a tier to just donate $1 a month. If we get 10 people to donate $1 a month, that would be amazing. If we get one person to donate $1 a month, that would be amazing. And so your support is really critical at this time as we try to continue to keep up these uh, terrific conversations that we've had over the last 12 months. Thank you so much again for listening and be sure to check out our very own Matt Downing's awesome podcast. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Diving deep, EDU. 
thought-provoking conversations. Now, Penn, before um, you hop off of this amazing podcast, we always take the last couple segments and just talk a little bit with each other about what this conversation is sort of making us rethink about education. And we'd love for you to, um, you know, uh, reflect with us. But uh, co-host, does anybody want to talk about what this is kind of making them think about? I can start. Um, so I think uh, lots of things that I've already shared, but um, I guess the one thing about how do I get my students to see themselves as someone who could take meaningful action, um, that's, uh, that's what I've been thinking about. Um, I think there's a lot that I've woven into my class. Um, about change agentry, but I, you know, so far I've been waiting for that spark. And I think it's been difficult as uh, some of us have mentioned here, um, especially this year um, where we haven't had our, you know, our moments that we've had, you know, in little, little ways um, to try and see if I can build some of that, that acumen, you know, that they, they just haven't had that chance yet. Um, but I'm wondering if uh, that's what the last part of my school year, 2021, bring it out like that and make sure that they see themselves as someone who can affect change. That's that's what I'm I'm thinking about right now. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a little, little, little level of moment. All right. <laughs> well, I, I can personally say I, I think you do a great job of that, Julie, and that there, there was evidence today, even in our class, that uh, you know, we we witnessed a student kind of stand up and point out to somebody that the the words his choice of words was not appropriate, and uh, so it's you're doing a great job. Just so you know, <laughs> but I mean, I'm thinking about um, you know, are more schools, and I, it's probably not actually even a question. I can probably make it a statement that schools are in need of more people with training in diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, whether that's you know, should there be a single person that's overseeing all of that and making sure that it happens? Or, you know, how can you, how can you build the capacity of your teachers to be more culturally responsive, you know, within, within your school? Um, you know, how do you make that the norm, not only for teachers, but also for students? Uh, so these, these are just some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about. I think Penn really shared with us a lot about how how to go about doing that. And uh, I just, I really I appreciate that part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, one theme that sort of has, has come to the surface a bit for me is the importance and the power of reflection, reflecting on, you know, where we've been, where we are, where we're going, um, and having a space for that and a time for that. Is important, and I think now, you know, even with this, uh, you know, the fatigue and screens and the phone in our hand and having all of this stuff um, and overload, it, it can really um, take away that time and that space for reflection. And I think it's important um, and essential, if not critical, to have that. And and it seems like like that's been noted again and again. Um, and that's that's something I've been thinking about. Yeah, I, I'm thinking along all of what you guys have mentioned, all of that is definitely like ringing true for me. I I would add that I am also thinking about the need to 
develop teams within schools and develop teams within um you know departments and even if it's like non-school institutions right to really support not only DEI practitioners like Penn but also support students who are sort of grappling with you know um their identity in some sort of way relative to that institution and having people skilled and kind of helping them navigate that path especially young people because it can be so um such like a, a, a you know you're trying to navigate your way through a fog like what does this mean for me and like what kinds of i'm feeling this sort of way about something and how do i you know how should i be feeling and like who do i go to for that so so definitely developing that team to support young people but also developing that team to support teachers and to support administrators and i'm thinking specifically of our administrators that um you know are not from traditional backgrounds that might come from working class backgrounds or come from low income backgrounds or you know um or maybe administrators of color and these these individuals they're really critical for us to continue to serve students in equitable and thoughtful and representative ways and yet we know that even in you know DEI work as Penn was mentioning right the burnout rate of these individuals is so high and it just is not something that we can let happen we need to use our resources to support people that um, we are like valuing to be in those positions, like actually show that we're valuing them by like, <laughs> you know, providing a, a structure around them to uplift them and allow them to do their job to navigate through these like hardship moments that they're going to experience. And I, th I think that that's just um you know i think about so many uh teachers that i've worked with that have felt that they were on an island because of their identity and i'm just like man i just want to be there for those people but i can't be the only one so how do we how do we like get more people on those teams you know um and i and last thing i'll share is just this this notion that Penn was talking about earlier is their identity as an educator you know and that's something that i still I struggle with. I've been in, you know, education for 15 years now. And I don't know if I would say that I'm a quote unquote teacher or quote unquote educator. Like I haven't identified those things as part of my identity, but you know, maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I uh yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe I need to work on grappling with that a little bit more. But I think that that's something that a lot of teachers um may need to reflect about and think about and and if you if that is part of your identity like what does that mean for you and what does that mean for you know how you're showing up to your work every day um pen what what is this conversation having you you sort of think about as as we're reflecting <laughs> um i i thank you all so much for just the gift of of those reflections. I want to have like a whole other spin-off conversation with each of you about all of the things that you just brought up. Um, I don't know, I think I think the thing that I'm thinking right at this moment of what's standing out to me is just like just feeling really grateful for the the space and the ability to have these conversations and to be in collaboration, you know, with 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 colleagues like old and new who are grappling with these things. Like I had a really long, hard day. It's it's late. I was honestly being like, oh, like, do I have like the energy to do this? Um, 
and I feel so amped up right now. Like I feel so energized, so like fueled and like really nurtured by this conversation. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of what's rising to the top for me right now is just like gratitude and, um, you know, just, just feeling reaffirmed, I think like in that educator identity of just like reconnecting with the parts of that, that, um, that are really empowering and that feel really good and that I'm really proud of. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of our guests feel that way. I know often, you know, we talk about our conversations, obviously off the podcast recording and I'm left like, man, that was so cool. <laughs> that was such, such an interesting and fun person to talk to and an inspiring person to talk to. So I'm glad you feel that way too. Now, Penn, we always end our episodes with an opportunity for our guests and our co-hosts to offer up some plugs. Um, and I, uh, I actually brought a plug, co-host. Aren't you proud of me? I just got a new book in the mail because, you know, um, I'm, I don't have enough reading. Um, but I'm going to plug uh, Releasing the Imagination, Essays on Education, the Arts, and Social Change, because, of course, I'm going to plug this book in an episode with Penn Pritchard. And it's by Maxine Green. Um, I literally just uh, got, it, got it today in the mail, and so I'm super excited about that. Um, let's see. Janine, what do you want to plug? Um, well, just considering that I've been writing, writing, writing for my dissertation, um, I have found using Outright has been super helpful. Outright, um, it was formerly known as Gradeproof, but uh, it's it's basically a platform that will edit and proofread your your writing. Um, and it even, you know, if you pay for the, the actual subscription, it'll it'll check for plagiarism and all sorts of fancy stuff. So it's been a real help with writing. So anybody out there working on dissertations or anything like that, I would suggest checking out Outright. <laughs> Matt, you want to plug something? Yeah, and I will check out Outright. I need to get on that. Um, I'll, I will plug Threadit. It's basically a new initiative through Google's uh, Area 120, which is an experimental um, group. Um, it's basically uh, Google's trying to do something like Flipgrid, and it's just kind of interesting, and I'm uh, curious to see how it will be different. Penn, what would you like to plug? Um, well, definitely the the one book that I mentioned, I grabbed it from my bookshelf so that I could tell you the whole thing. So um, the Adrienne Marie Brown book, um, it's called We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice. Um, love it. Can't say enough good things. It's very short. It's a very like quick little text. Um, and I've like already read through it twice. So love that one. Um, and then my one that's like on deck that I haven't started working through yet. Um, I love, love, love um, Sonia Renee Taylor's work. Um, so she is the founder of the, it was a website, um, The Body Is Not an Apology. She wrote a, another, a book a few years ago called The Body Is Not an Apology um, that is absolutely incredible. Um, that's all about, um, it, it's all about radical self-love, but like it's, it's so much more than that. You have to check it out. She's absolutely incredible. Um, so there's a new um, Your Body Is Not an Apology workbook um, that's tools for living radical self-love. So that's the next thing that I'm going to be um, diving into. And I'm really, really excited because her work is absolutely phenomenal. Well, Penn Pritchard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. Um, and listeners out there, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Um, as usual, we're dropping the mic here with our amazing guests, Emily Liebtag, Penn Pritchard. Really, it's been, you know, amazing the last few guests that we've had on. I know that I've really enjoyed the conversations. Listeners, 
thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Be sure to check us out um, on our website, rethinkingedu.co. Leave us your review on your favorite podcast outlet like Apple Podcasts and head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash rethinkingedu. You can support our podcast by donating anywhere between $1 and $1 million per month. You know, uh, $1 million would be would be amazing if you got that kind of uh, flow sitting around, but one would also just be awesome we would love that too so thank you so much for for listening to this episode check us out for our next episode and as always keep rethinking edu